Leaving home on a grey January morning, I sat in an air-conditioned plane whilst the hours drift by. I then remember climbing down from the plane onto the tarmac in 25 degree heat. It just kind of hits you and it takes a moment to acclimatise. I'd gone to Sierra Leone to work as a nurse. I had a three-month secondment to support the efforts to contain the Ebola epidemic, caring for patients suspected of having the virus as well as those who had been fully diagnosed. The advantage for me going to Sierra Leone was that they speak English. I'm not good with other languages and I thought if I'm going to be able to care for people, I need to be able to speak with them. I don't know how much you know about Ebola. We had no vaccine. The best we could do was care for the symptoms such as dehydration and to wash and comfort the patient. The treatment centre was a series of basic wooden frame buildings with plastic sheeting for walls and ceiling. There were separate zones for the medics and for the patients. The entrances were separate to limit infection. There was a temporary feel about the whole place. The main area of the treatment centre itself consisted of three wards. The first two for those suspected of contracting Ebola. It was a high and a low probability ward. The third ward was the Ebola ward for those with confirmed cases who had been infected with the virus. And there was also a mortuary. Patients would enter wards through one of two entrances. Either they would walk in themselves, showing some of the symptoms of Ebola, but not yet confirmed. They would be assessed and placed into either the high or low probability ward. A blood test is required to confirm the diagnosis. Alternatively, a patient would be brought in, clearly suffering with the virus, and they would be taken to the Ebola ward. Whilst in the treatment centre, the patients are isolated from medics. Visitors are not allowed in, and patients are not allowed to leave until it is confirmed that they are not infectious. Ebola has a 21-day incubation period. Us medics would enter through a dressing room. In order to ensure that we did not become infected, we were required to dress in full protective gear, including a face mask, gloves and goggles. We looked like something out of a movie, like we'd be dealing with a radioactive material. The protective gear had to be completely impermeable. It was hot. The moment you put it on, you could feel the sweat dripping down the inside. For our own safety, we could only wear the gear for an hour. Taking it off meant going through the decontamination to the safe area. This involved being sprayed with chlorine, then removing the layers of protection. Once in the safe area, we needed to rehydrate ourselves. If you have ever been a patient in hospital, you will know that at the best of times, it can be an isolating experience. Imagine what it's like when the only people you get to see and care for you are wearing impermeable protective clothing. There is no physical touch, always a barrier of rubber. 
You can't really make eye contact because of the plastic goggles and the condensation. Trying to offer some words of reassurance or conversation becomes more challenging when the face mask muffles your voice and the head cover makes it difficult to hear. It was a quiet place. There is, of course, the physical suffering with Ebola. Sudden fever, intense weakness, muscle pain, sore throat. There is vomiting, diarrhea, a rash, impaired kidney and liver function, as well as internal and external bleeding for some. There is also the mental and emotional suffering. It wasn't uncommon to have people from the same family in the ward. I remember one occasion when a mother and two of her four children were on the Ebola ward. What's more, her husband, the children's father, had died days earlier, as had the grandparents and close friends and neighbours. This mother and her two daughters stick in my mind particularly because of the conversation I was party to as they were saying their goodbyes to one another knowing that they were getting weaker and coming closer to death. Another patient had walked to the treatment centre alone, but he didn't really want to be there. I mean, who did? He had a few symptoms and was assessed before entering the high-probability ward. Over the next few days, as I spoke with him during the routine care, I learned he was the first in his immediate family to contract Ebola. His father had told him to get out of the house. He wouldn't touch him. There were no hugs or farewells, no goodbyes or best wishes. His dad demanded he leave, then slammed the door behind him. His best friend of 19 years died a week earlier, and his cousin just days after. Everyone was terrified, and he knew he had no choice but to leave home. There was no point arguing, no point begging, no point crying. There had been no time to process the impact of recent bereavements. Now he was stuck in the treatment centre with nothing to do and plenty of time to think. After a few days on the ward, his condition was deteriorating and it was clear he was distressed. His fever was becoming worse and the rash more widespread. It was apparent that the physical pain and discomfort were causing misery. His psychological and emotional states were also a cause of great concern. One morning, I was in the safe area getting ready to begin my shift. There was a commotion and I saw this patient walking away from the centre. I later learned he had been told his blood results had arrived, but before hearing the confirmation that he was indeed suffering with Ebola, he had pulled himself up from the bed and left the ward. In dismay, the medics had been unprepared and unable to stop him. Those not wearing the full protective gear moved away. They were shouting for the patient to get back inside the centre. Because of the fear surrounding Ebola and the shock of the situation, no one would go near him to stop him, to bring him back or to offer assistance. He hobbled on and those in front moved away. There were always people milling around on the streets, but suddenly 
they were deserted, just a solitary figure struggling along the road. Away at the other end of the street, there was another disturbance. A group of people were moving towards where we were, and at some point, they were going to encounter this contagious man. As the group moved along the street, people started shouting. Those who were aware of the man were calling out warnings not to get close. The man who appeared to be leading the group continued walking, but those who were with him slowed down. I heard someone shout his name. Isho! Stop! Get back, Isho! I'd heard rumours about this man, a preacher who had been travelling around and reportedly healing people. He continued down the street. A distinguishable gap emerged between this man, Isho, and those who had been following him. They were still moving forward, but more cautiously. The excitement they expressed when I first spotted them had changed to concern. It wasn't until Isho was quite close to the patient that the patient seemed to notice. He stopped. The patient raised his head and looked towards Isho. The shouting stopped. The street was silent. Isho stood just in front of the patient. There was a palpable tension. The patient spoke. He begged. If you are willing, you can make me clean. It was one of those moments where it feels like time slows down or stands still. What would this Isho do? What could he do? Did he really think he could heal a man diagnosed with Ebola? Isho stretched out his hand. He took the patient by his hand. I am willing. Be clean. Immediately, the patient's appearance changed. Instead of looking worn out and dejected, his eyes changed. He looked hopeful. His body seemed to unfold, and he grew in stature. I thought it might have been the psychological impact of being accepted and having someone touch him for the first time in weeks. From where I was, I could see the rash was gone. The street remained silent, stunned. Isho, still holding the man's hand, ordered him, go straight back to the treatment centre. Show yourself to the doctors and the nurses. Allow yourself to be examined and follow their instructions. Give all thanks to God. When you are given the all clear and discharged from hospital, go to the church and give testimony. Instead, the patient began dancing and singing. He called out and started to tell everyone he'd been healed. A crowd swelled around the man and I realised the preacher, the healer, this miracle man Isho, was quietly walking away. I watched as he retreated and within moments he had disappeared. I turned from where I was standing. I walked across to the dressing room and began to put the protective gear, the face mask and the goggles on. As I entered, a woman was being brought to the Ebola ward. She did not look well, and it was clear she would not last the night.
few weeks later, I was back home. No one seemed to understand or really care. No one could fathom the cultural differences, the suffering, the pain, or the death that I had witnessed. I was insufferable. I was that person who would go out for drinks with friends and be like, why? Why are you talking about TV shows? Don't you understand that there are people suffering and dying? And like the miracle man, I retreated. I couldn't or didn't want to talk about Sierra Leone. But when I did, no one seemed interested. I walked a lot. I walked around the town. Just walked the streets. And I watched people. And as I walk and as I watch, I reflect. I realise in my hometown that there are plenty of people like that patient. Isolated. Lonely. Rejected. I wonder who it is I need to reach out to, to touch or to hold. Who needs to be welcomed back into society? To be accepted. To feel clean. I wonder if the church has a role to play. I wonder. I wonder if the church is willing.